Ken Forrester, Executive Director at Momenta. Welcome to our Digital Thread Podcast, produced by, for, and about digital industry leaders. In this series of conversations, we capture insights from the best and brightest minds in digital industry. They're executives, entrepreneurs, advisors, and other thought leaders. What they have in common is like our team at Momenta, they are deep industry operators. We hope you find these podcasts informative, and as always, we welcome your comments and suggestions. Good day and welcome to episode 162 of our Momenta Digital Thread podcast series. Today, I'm pleased to be joined by David C. King, CEO of Foghorn Systems, a Silicon Valley company providing edge intelligence software for industrial and commercial IoT applications. Prior to joining Foghorn, David co-founded Airtight Networks, a technology leader in secure managed Wi-Fi, where he served as chairman and chief executive officer, leading the company through four successive up rounds of venture capital funding. Prior to Airtight, he served as chairman, president, and chief executive officer of Proxim, a pioneer in WLAN and the first publicly traded Wi-Fi company. David led Proxim through a successful IPO in December 1993 and drove 20 times revenue growth as a public company during his tenure as CEO. In addition to his board positions at Airtight and Proxim, he served on the boards of Natopia, Cayman Systems, and MobileStar, all pioneering companies in the broadband access and networking industries. David holds a BA in economics as well as an MBA and JD degrees, all from Harvard University. David, welcome to our Digital Thread podcast. Thank you, Ken. It's great to be here. And it's great to have you. I love the pre-conversation both of us had about our respective histories and how many times we've crossed paths. So it's good to finally be able to get you on this program. So I always like to start asking about one's digital thread, if you will. In other words, the one or more thematic threads that define their digital industry journey. What would you consider to be your digital thread? Okay, it's great to be here with a fellow pioneer in the industrial IoT domain. My digital thread actually extends back over 40 years, so I'm dating myself a bit. Back to the late 70s when I was actually in college still, but working my first college jobs at IBM of all places. Back then in the late 70s, after 40, 50 years of success, IBM was by far the dominant player, you know, in the technology world. You know, they had probably about half or more of the industry's revenues and more than 100% of the industry's profits. That is, they were the only profitable company. But with that leading market position, some would say dominant position, my role there actually was in the, the smaller systems division. And specifically, you know, today we call those server computers. Back then they were the kind of early stage mini computers. I was working actually on the smallest system, which was really a precursor to the IBM PC. So the beginning of my digital thread goes all the way back 40 plus years ago in a very, very different world where working on very disruptive technology within the IBM kind of context where the smaller systems were starting to take over certain tasks and roles for mainframe computers, the big iron, and then really the gleam in the eye with these precursor to the IBM PC, which came five, 10 years later, the idea of a personal computer was really being hatched. After that, it got multiple degrees, as you mentioned at Harvard. And during that time, after that, worked at McKinsey uh, as a consultant. And one of the seminal experiences I had there was actually consulting at Apple in the mid-late 80s, so about a decade later. And there, the PC had been launched. You know, Apple had gone from the Lisa to the very early versions of the Mac, and that's exactly the time I was there consulting. And so kind of witnessed kind of the birth of the personal computer, both the precursor generation, as well as really the first true PCs that IBM and Apple had brought out at the time. 
From there, I uh, went after consulting to take over a little company called Proxim. I actually first joined as a head of marketing. And believe it or not, acting CFO was a very small company at the time. Uh, but it happened to be the moment at which wireless local area networking, wireless LANs, first took hold in the early 90s. And Proxim had a very interesting pole position, developing spread spectrum radio modules, and then eventually the first wireless LAN, NIC cards, uh, these built-in modules or plug-in modules for mobile devices. And at that time, it was mostly industrial devices, you know, barcode scanners and such, mobile medical equipment. But also had the very first products for personal computers, the laptops that were beginning to ship at the time. So again, very early stage pioneering technology. And literally, it was almost a decade before the term Wi-Fi was invented and the whole Wi-Fi industry took off. So again, very disruptive technology at the time in the wireless networking space, where people at that time were fundamentally doing everything over Ethernet and trying to get from 10 megabits per second up to 100. We were pioneering the first you know, 1 and 2 megabit per second wireless LAN systems pushing forward to try to get the 10 megabits from eventually 11 with the 811 standard. You know, from there, we went to uh, Airtight Networks in the early 2000s. I co-founded a company, Airtight, in 2004 and 5. And that company was the first to do secure cloud-managed Wi-Fi, you know, along with other pioneering companies like Meraki. And so we went from wireless LANs plugged into computers and access points that cost thousands of dollars hung on the walls or in the drop ceilings into a world where Wi-Fi was starting to be embedded in laptops and in smartphones. And uh, this was a company that went into the cloud and provided a wireless LAN system that had built-in intrusion protection. So fundamentally, kind of pioneering and disruptive technology in the Wi-Fi world for over 20 years. And then finally ended up in Foghorn in about 2015, where we first met. And Foghorn was, at that time, a very pioneering company in the edge computing space for industrial IoT, which we'll talk a lot more about because that's obviously the subject, the focus of this uh, particular podcast. But over this 40-year span, the digital thread has really been, and I know it's an overused term, but disruptive technology, right? From small systems when the whole world was big systems at IBM to PCs when the whole world was just trying to figure out what a PC meant, right, back in the, uh, the 80s and 90s, right, into wireless networking, you know, long before it became pervasive in the post-2000 period. And now still, frankly, in the pioneering phase of bringing edge computing into the industrial IoT world and specifically bringing the capabilities of AI down to the edge. You know, I like that, that kind of the dual threads, disruptive and pioneering that really defines, as you said, the journey that you've taken in the leadership positions you've had. I mean, a great leadership record there and, uh, you know, of one win after another. All of this, of course, culminated in you joining Foghorn in 2015. What attracted you to the company and I guess more importantly, the industrial IoT space that it represents? Well, I was brought into Foghorn by some of the financial investors that backed the incubator, the Hive, that actually had created Foghorn back in late 2014. And they'd given it a name, hired a few engineers. And the concept that pushed forward was this idea of an edge computing stack, right, for industrial IoT. That was kind of the target space. But frankly, there wasn't a lot of definition around that yet. What did that really mean, right? As you know, companies like ThingWorks that you created, right, had pioneered this idea of a mashup layer application development environment, an IDE, if you will, for building industrial IoT platforms, principally in a cloud or centralized uh, data center environment. And so the whole idea of Foghorn was, hey, we need this extra layer or additional layer of compute where you don't want to send all the data to a centralized compute resource or to the cloud because the data needs to be acted on immediately for latency reasons. You've got security concerns about sending it somewhere, but particularly 
right? You really want to do this in a more low cost, uh, more hyper efficient fashion. So the concept was there, but just as you know, I, we were pioneering wireless networking when the world was still wired lands five, 10 years before it became a pervasive technology and maybe even 10 years plus. The same thing, frankly, was happening today as we speak in edge computing and industrial IoT. So targeting industrial actually was simply a function of the use case is being most valuable in the industrial or the commercial setting, right? The idea that you're going to take these captive OT systems, operation technology systems, you know, PLCs and DCSs and all these acronyms that come out of the OT world, which were very foreign to IT professionals, right? And to folks in the kind of modern technology world. And I live in Silicon Valley, right? The idea that you're going to take all this kind of captive data in the OT world and send it to the cloud, right, really didn't make sense. And so you needed to have a different paradigm for compute. And so when I was introduced to Foghorn and, um, and the Hive, you know, I looked at it and said, hey, this actually has hallmarks to me of what we were trying to do in wireless lands, you know, 15, 20 years earlier, where the whole world was trying to figure out how to get, you know, data over wires faster when, frankly, laptops weren't even shipping yet. But you could see that eventually as more mobile platforms like laptops and eventually, you know, what was called PDAs at the time, eventually became smartphones. As more and more mobility entered the compute world, you would need a different paradigm for networking and wireless lands and specifically Wi-Fi became the way that happened. Likewise, as we see the pervasiveness of IoT getting beyond consumer, you know, mobile devices and connected vehicles into the industrial world, into the real physical world, whether it's in manufacturing or it's in energy production, oil and gas, whether it's in smart buildings and smart infrastructure, smart transportation, right? The idea that you're going to send all of the world's physical sensor data to the cloud doesn't make a lot of sense either economically from a security perspective, and especially from kind of an application development perspective. So the idea of, of edge compute uh, targeting industrial IoT, to me, kind of went hand in hand. And so, frankly, my experience at Proxim, where our first customers, way before Wi-Fi had been invented, were really companies in the warehousing, manufacturing, retail, and transportation space. And so to me, there were a lot of uh, similarities that to make this technology truly pervasive, you need to pick the verticals, you need to pick the application solutions, the use cases that will really drive adoption. And so we've been on that kind of a journey at, uh, at Foghorn of finding what are the best use cases, how do you show enterprises the fundamental value proposition around this technology, and from you know the early beginnings of POCs and early deployments, to scaling, and that's the journey we've been on for the last five years. Yeah, there's certainly a continuation of your disruptive and pioneering theme earlier, especially relative to edge computing. It's interesting as some of the earlier companies you mentioned, ThingWorks as an example, there were always the two components, as you call it, the mashup environment, the visualization, if you will. And then behind it, always some form of distributed, they called it edge microserver, but some you know small component that would sit down on a gateway and help collect the data and bring it back up. And it's almost like the IoT platforms, industrial IoT platforms have kind of bifurcated around that. You've got the ones that you know, truly kind of the visualization cloud level and the ones that have really focused on the edge. And you guys clearly have been a leader in both. To help understand Foghorn a little bit better for the audience, you know, can you talk a little bit about some of your key use cases and wins? Yeah, so the use cases that we've really focused on have been those that involve what we would call more advanced compute. Rather than just kind of collecting data, as you described, and getting it to a data center or getting it to the cloud, right, to do the visualization and to try to execute kind of machine learning or advanced analytics, Foghorn's vision from the beginning was to put, you know, I guess the, what my co-founder, Sashi Miladi, and I, um, after we you know, got in and 
started running this company in 2015, was really put what we call the intelligence at, at the edge, right? So we'll talk more about that, I'm sure, throughout the discussion. But to us, edge intelligence really means right putting a lot more compute capability, that is very advanced complex event analytics, machine learning, deep learning, really AI operating on live sensor data. And for us, the key that use case is the value proposition is far greater if you've got really high volume or velocity data like video cameras, you know, audio sensors, high density vibration sensor, or you're talking about right, contextualizing data that's coming from multiple disparate sources, you know, sensor fusion of a lot of different data sources and providing real-time response you know, at the edge, that is on the live data. And so the use cases that we've done, <laughs> I call our, our company the last few years of being on a journey of, of letting 100 flowers bloom, if you know that historical reference, where <laughs> literally we've done over 100 plus successful POCs and initial stage deployments in many, many industries, discrete manufacturing, whether it's automotive or semiconductor, industrial products, consumer packaged goods, any type of discrete manufacturing you can imagine, we've done probably a use case. Similarly, in process industries, but especially oil and gas, where we've had a, a major investor, Saudi Aramco, largest industrial company in the world, that has really been on a digital journey with us to pioneer many, many use cases in the oil and gas production and, and uh, midstream processing side of their business. And I would say that what we see in both manufacturing and oil and gas is a split between video-based applications, you know, image processing, machine vision, where we're literally running our stack in a camera right next to a camera to do very advanced, and it's more than just object detection. I mean, you're really trying to now do, you know, on-the-fly decision-making, right? Whether it's for worker safety, whether it's for reducing emissions for flare stacks, whether it's video quality inspection manufacturing. So looking for those anomalies or looking for those improvements in processes where a video camera can make a difference, right? Camera is the new sensor. We've also done a lot of work, of course, in that high-velocity realm with vibration, right? Vibration sensors have been introduced over the last 5, 10 years. Now they're becoming quite pervasive, and they add a much greater layer of clarity and granularity to predictive maintenance, right? Predictive maintenance when you're just looking at you know, long-term historical patterns of machines that break down, and you're looking for signals in temperature, and pressure, velocity, torque, whatever your traditional digital sensor, vibration really gives you much better signals, right, earlier if you can weed out all the false positives and can deal with the kind of profusion of data being produced every second of the day. And so video and vibration, you know, high velocity sensors, that's one part of it. The other, it's, I would call it slower data sources, things like you know, traditional digital sensors, you know, like temperature and pressure, but bringing that compute right down where you have literally measuring temperature every once a second, <laughs> but you've got literally thousands of these sensors or tens of thousands of sensors in the building or in a transportation system, being able to process those without trying to transport all that data to a centralized data source like the cloud, where frankly, it's just not very efficient and it costs a lot of money to store that data, much less transport it, right? Really what you want to do is find use cases where you can drive kind of immediate business value. So we've done a lot of work recently in energy management where especially, you know, specifically around HVAC optimization, where you know, 60% of the bill of anybody's uh, you know, utility bill a month is HVAC. And that HVAC system, by the way, if you can drive 20, 30% savings by frankly turning things off or not having things run when they don't need to be running or tuning them optimally for the right temperature setting at the right time, these kind of things can actually drive a huge amount of savings, you know, the business value and reduce carbon footprint at the same time. So the use cases are really many and varied and and as I said, we've done a lot of work in manufacturing and oil and gas, in smart buildings, infrastructure, and have also done some in transportation around rail and fleet as well. But there's just so many different sectors and verticals to cover, much less companies to serve that, you know, we, I think we only scratch the surface. 
Yeah, you guys have a pretty wide remit of interesting use cases that you've done. I guess in the same sense, there's a diversity of use cases. There's also a diversity of platforms that are out there. I think IoT Analytics account is up to 700 IoT platforms, given their last report. Only a few, of course, I think you and I would agree are what I'd consider to be truly enterprise-grade industrial IoT quality. But given even that large group, what I'm impressed with is Foghorn always seems to stand out in terms of market presence and even most recently in the Magic Quadrant with Gartner. How do you guys do that? How do you maintain that standing out among all of the other peers that are there? Well, thank you. I appreciate the, the compliment coming from the founder of ThingWorks. That was one of the first to really stand out as first independently as part of PTC. You paved the path, if you will, in terms of pioneering efforts here. But frankly, Foghorn's focus really was not so much on platform per se, in terms of NIOT, it was really meant to be the specialist in building the world's best edge computer, edge intelligence platform. And so, yes, there is the ability to manage from the cloud, in which we provide as part of our Lightning product, our OEMs, like initially GE, you know, and eventually Honeywell and, and others that have leveraged our platform, fundamentally have found value specifically in the very advanced analytics, machine learning, deep learning that Foghorn does at the edge. And you can use our complete platform, right, which is a true end-to-end, edge-to-cloud platform. But really, we also OEM the platform, right, the edge part of it that can be plugged into other companies. You know, they may have their own data ingestion. They may have their own kind of mashup layer cloud infrastructure, cloud architecture that we can plug into. So our, I guess, key to success has been our singular focus on having the world's best edge platform that can be either our own. In a full end-to-end platform, and which is you know, where we make some of these competitive analyses, but also as part of other companies, uh, broader in you know, edge-to-cloud systems. So I think by focusing on the edge and really pioneering it every step of the way, first with you know edge analytics, then edge machine learning, and then edge deep learning, edge AI, we've architected the product from the beginning. I give my co-founder, Sasha Milani, all the credit. He architected this from the scratch to be not only very flexible, but really having you know, kind of leading-edge no pun intended, technology, things like containerization, which, you know, we were very early adopters of Docker back in, you know, five, 10 years ago. Docker was still fairly new. And when we started back in 15, Docker was becoming a pervasive platform, but we clearly made a, a good choice. And then, of course, you know, moving to Kubernetes as a containerization strategy for edge to deployment and distribution. But we've also made, I think, all the right calls in terms of what are the ingestion protocols, right? It's not enough just to have MQTT and maybe OPC, UA, and DA, which a lot of companies have for certain manufacturing environments. But if you get into energy, you need Modbus, you know, both TCP and serial. If you get into transportation, right, you clearly need CAN bus. If you get into building technology, BMSs, right, you clearly need backend. And so we've added all the right industrial protocols. And of course, the architecture is flexible enough that if you've got some proprietary protocol that's not supported, right, we have the, you know, an SDK that makes it very easy. So you can really extend our platform and uh, take our full end-to-end solution, right, if that suits your needs, or work with any of our OEM partners that have adopted our edge stack as part of their end-to-end solution. Perfect. And just so we don't continue to uh, perpetrate a a misnomer out there, I actually am not a founder of ThingWorks. Uh, I will give that honor to Rick Bellotta, who we all know and love in the industry, and together with Russ Fidal and uh, John Richardson. They were nice enough to invite me in very early to be part of the company. And so, but thank you for putting me among the highly esteemed group. It is interesting, though, being part of ThingWorks and a couple other companies we've invested in in this space, a lot of analysts, especially those, I think, coming from the IT side, kind of bemoan how slow things have moved in the industrial IoT. Perpetual trough of disillusionment, I heard somebody say not too long ago. 
when you joined Foghorn in 2015, I'm sure you had a set of an idea of a trajectory of where the company was going to go as and the industry. Do you think you're were on track for that, or do you think things have moved slower? And if so, why? Well, early on, frankly, one of your colleagues that recently joined Momenta, Mike Dolbeck, who was our Series A co-lead investor from GE Ventures at the time, I think said it best, which is there's built-in friction and barriers to adoption for industrial in any of the industrial sectors that we're serving, right? Whether it's manufacturing, oil and gas, smart infrastructure, transportation, all of those sectors, it's they're massive sectors, right? They're world's half the world's GDP. But they're also notoriously slow to adopt new technology, right? I mean, they really had focused on their OT systems, which were kind of firewalled or get, you know, air gapped off of IT systems. They didn't want to be susceptible to security breaches and they didn't want to have any disruption of real time production. And so we come to the industry knowing that there are some built in barriers to adoption and built in friction in the system as I talked about it with Mike way back. But just as Mike really saw the value back then in how GE with previous could leverage the next instantiation, if you will, of value in IoT was going to be the edge, not simply in the cloud. We knew it was going to be a slow pace. So I always joke that, hey, this could take decades, right, to play out. And so one of the questions I had for the investors that brought me in is, do they know what they're signing up for, right? You know, these are financial investors who invest in Valley companies whose typical life cycle might be, you know, five to seven years before you monetize. We're here and it could take a lot longer, right? So that's one of the reasons that we pursued companies like GE initially and Mike, and eventually, you know, a lot of the other leaders in the industry like Honeywell, Saudi Aramco. Bosch, et cetera, to co-invest in the company because we wanted that industrial perspective, both as a path to get into customers and you know get adoption in the market and validation in the market, but also because they bring a perspective about the pace at which you know change happens in the industrial world. So kind of knew it going in and having you know had my product experience where you know we were building very specific you know use cases and applications for wireless lands, whether it was in retail barcode devices for price markup markdown or you know, inventory control, or whether it was mobile patient, you know, management systems or mobile um, you know, diagnostic equipment and medical, right? I knew there was going to be a path to try to find those use cases. It has been slower than probably any of us expected, but I, part of that I would attribute to COVID. Frankly, we were starting to really scale, I think, well, a few years back, you know, two, three years ago with these hundred flowers of use cases that we were doing and starting to find the ones that really had a lot of, a lot of scalability attached to them, whether they're a customer base when COVID hit and frankly, not being able to get to plants and work with operators definitely slowed everybody down, right? So that threw a curveball of the whole industry, which we're still only now beginning, I think, as an industry to come out of. We're now, you know, the, the digital transformation efforts, the, the investments in IoT and all these different IoT-related technologies, it's just starting to pick back up again. So I'd say, you know, COVID definitely didn't help us <laughs> and it probably hurt the cause for many who were starting to get traction. Unfortunately, we had enough staying power with a lot of our big customers, you know, especially like Saudi Aramco and oil and gas and some of our bigger manufacturing customers to keep going. And we also diversified at that time into energy management, which with its whole sustainability, you kind know, of carbon footprint reduction, as well as the economic savings we can drive, gives us kind of a different pillar, if you will, to build a business on. Mm. Given your prior background in airtight and proximate, both of those 10 years plus in terms of your tenure, perhaps the original investors that brought you into this actually had that in mind because uh, you're a rarity in Silicon Valley in terms of putting you know 10 years into one company. So I'd say you probably have the staying power and I, I'd say you're probably going to see the value out of there, hopefully proportional to or similar, I should say, to your prior companies as well. So. Look, quick question. You mentioned some of these great clients, customers, and investors you have. 
How do you know when an organization is really ready to utilize Foghorn? I mean, what are some of the best practices you've seen in those companies that are really getting the value out of these platforms? Yeah, it's a good question. I think the sure sign, of course, is you've got staffing and budget. <laughs> That's the kind of generic answer that I think any tech company would say that once an OEM sets up a group and or really puts on the roadmap, right, embedding edge technology into their IoT platform or their IoT applications, right, you know, we're, we're on the road, their technology roadmap. But until they frankly start to staff it, right, and really allocate budget, right, to the edge intelligence layer, if you will, right, you're never sure kind of how ready they are. But once they start to staff it, then you know you're on the right path. And that applies both to OEMs, but it also, of course, applies to end customers. Now, at the end customer level, the one big tell, if you will, or the surest sign that you've got a customer that's ready to go is when we're starting to work directly with the operations staff, right? When you're starting to work with the plant personnel, the plant manager, the people on the line, right? The OT professionals, right? That work with those operations folks to get these applications deployed in the plant, on the machines, right? In the process. Once that happens, then you know you've got a customer who's, you know, this is not just a POC and a digital experimentation project, right? This is more than just proof of concept. This is something that's going to be utilized and, and potentially scaled. That's the surest sign that you're on the right path. If you're talking just to the digital folks about putting something in a lab or doing some kind of experiment, right, where you're working just on historical data or on simulated data, you're not there, right? It's only when you're starting to actually work on pulling the data out of the protocol servers in the plant floor, or attaching to PLCs, or plugging in new vibration sensors, or putting a camera in place, right, to run the models. Until you're at that point of working, right, in the physical environment with the actual operations people, you're not really there. And frankly, that's, as I mentioned, COVID, where you can't get to the plant environment. You can't send staff here and send your staff and with the digital folks from the client into the plants to actually deploy this right? That, that's a real barrier, right? So you really, we're just starting to see everybody now opening up all the plants and, and starting to get back to if we want more normal business practice, which is a good sign because I think you now we'll see the pace of innovation pick up again. Yeah, I fully agree. And I've been hearing the same thing across our portfolio of companies as well. The good news is all of us are generally in the use case of remote asset management. And that has been the key use case when you couldn't get people out to these things, right? So the industry generally has done pretty well during this time, but the constraint has been the ability to install these systems in a lot of places. So, look, I know you've probably been a Silicon Valley company and you've mentioned COVID several times. I'm curious because I've no longer lived in Silicon Valley. Given this, what they call tech migration, I mean, how has things changed? Silicon Valley in terms of setting up a company, work, life, et cetera? Is everything the press says is or, or much less? Well, I think we're not fully out of it yet. I mean, we're still largely locked down in the Valley. Santa Clara County is one of the strictest, probably, at least in the United States, maybe the world in terms of really restricting the work environment, right? So largely, I think most companies are still remote or largely remote. There have some critical staff, obviously, that's come back to the office. Some are starting to allow employees back. But many of the big tech giants in and around the Valley, you know, some have already gone all the way to the extreme of saying that everybody can be remote. Nobody has to come in. You know, most are saying they want, especially, I think, on the technology side of the house, where the kind of you know, in-person collaboration can really make a difference in innovation, right? They're trying to encourage people to come back. But the restrictions are not quite fully relaxed yet. And so we're still waiting to see how it all turns out. Personally, I think in the end, it wouldn't be the worst thing if traffic went down by half and, and necessarily business travel went, went down by half. I've been saying that since the start of COVID. And I think we were all way too invested in everybody going to the office or everybody being on the road in front of customers. 
that some of it was probably unnecessary. So this could help us in the end. So the hybrid environment everybody talks about, I think, is, is would be a good endpoint. But we're not there yet. At least in the Valley, companies are just starting to bring employees back. We have not yet brought everybody back. We do allow folks to come in, but a lot of restrictions around masks and other things that are still in place. So it's not kind of the fully open environment that we hope to get in the next few years. You mentioned hybrid events generally, trade shows, et cetera, is where I'm seeing the biggest difference. And personally, I'm not sure that I would do, except for those exceptional ones, live events because the hybrid ones are really getting good in terms of the way that at least the session materials and everything else are going. So I suspect that'll be one of the biggest changes we've seen. And you talk about a climate-friendly approach. (laughs) Nobody jumping on aluminum tubes to fly across the Atlantic or Pacific to go to these things. So. In closing, a question I always like to ask is, where do you find your personal inspiration? Well, I, I saw the question, you know, talking about books, online. There's lots of ways that get the information. But fundamentally, for me, it's about the people and the companies. When I think about, when I talked about disruptive technology, pioneering innovation, I get draw my inspiration. Everybody can point to folks like Steve Jobs or Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk. Those are the easy folks to point to as truly disruptive personalities in their companies. The success of the companies really demonstrate the power of their vision and their disruption. But there's been just generations of great pioneering leaders, right, from the early days in the Valley, right? I mean, you had pioneers in the early generation, not as powerful probably as this generation, but you had the Bill Gates and the Scott McNeely's and the Larry Ellison's of the world that had the last generation of tech powerhouses. But to me, it's not just the pioneers, the entrepreneurs that kind of drive to the ultimate success. It's also some of the great managers that have come in and taken over companies and taken them to the right, you know, the next level. Folks like Satya Nadella and Shanti Narayan from Microsoft, Adobe, you know, folks, folks like Nikesh Aurora, Palo Alto Networks, you know, Lisa Su at AMD. Sometimes it's a great leader or manager coming into an existing company and just making it better, right? You think of GE and Larry Culp coming in and turning around that battleship and trying to do what he's doing. So for me, it's all about the leaders, the people. That's really what inspires me, right? So whether I'm learning about them, whether it's on television or online, you know, or it's reading about in books, it's really just the, the, the story of the people and then the organizations that they lead and the powerhouses that those companies become. I mean, literally, you know, I just start, started jotting down names when I saw the question. <laughs> it came up with, you know, two dozen, three dozen of these powerful leaders and learning about their personal journeys and what they've done to transform their organization and drive them forward, right? There's just so many success stories in technology. And that's really what inspires me. You know, I'd put your name among those as well, given uh, your uh, serial entrepreneurial history and certainly your successes and the success that Foghorn undoubtedly will be. So, David, thank you for sharing this time and these insights with us today. Thank you. Great to speak with you. Yes, as well. So this has been David C. King, CEO of Foghorn Systems. And if I may, a serial disruptive and pioneering digital leader. Thank you for listening, and please join us next week for the next episode of our Digital Thread podcast series. Thank you, and have a great day. You've been listening to the Momenta Digital Thread podcast series. We hope you've enjoyed the discussion, and as always, we welcome your comments and suggestions. Please check our website at momenta.one for archived versions of podcasts, as well as resources to help with your digital industry journey. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening.